Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is January the 6th, 2016. This is episode uh, six, 1703 of the Survival Podcast. Today I have a, a good topic for you, something we haven't talked about in a while, uh, going truly into the, the deeper world of preparedness thinking. Strategic Relocation and Other Cool Stuff with Joel Skalson, Skalson, I'm sorry, uh, who is really an awesome guy. He's been around for a very long time in the preparedness space since the 1970s, and he's still doing what he does, and he's pretty good at it. He's an amazing guy, and I'll have him on to talk about strategic relocation, specifically within the United States. Before we get to that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today is Sawtooth Tastical, nestled up in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho. Veteran-run, veteran-operated Sawtooth uh, Tactical has all the things you need to live that tactical lifestyle. They've been a sponsor of ours for an awful long time. They do a discount for members of the Support Brigade. And if you can think of it, they've got it. If it's tactical, they've got it. If it's practical, they probably have that too. Check them out today at sawtac.com. Next up today... BulkAmmo.com. BulkAmmo.com has been with us, I guess, four or five years now as a sponsor. Uh, they are the go-to place to buy your ammo in bulk. That's why they're called Bulk Ammo. I think what shocks people, though, with Bulk Ammo is not so much that it's a good deal, but it is. It's the speed that your, your, your order is processed with and how quick your ammo ends up at your door. You almost wonder how do they do that. Well, they do it because they strive for perfection from a standpoint of customer service. You can get any, you can get ammo anywhere, but if you want great pricing and great service from great people, get on over to bulkammo.com and stock up today. You know, there's a lot of talk right now about more gun regulations. I think largely the executive orders that are being spouted by the tearful Obama are pretty useless. I don't know that they can really do anything to bother anybody right now, uh, but they're always pushing for it. And even when they're pushing and they're not going to get anywhere, people freak out. And you think the guns dry up fast, the ammo dries up, and the prices drive up quickly. So if you need to restock, I would do that now, bulkammo.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year. That was the episode, the year 1703, because the episode is 1703. And from Alex Shrugged at TSPWiki.com, I have a major weather disaster hits England and the news. I also have the founder of the Methodist movement is born. That would be John Wesley, for those not in the know. And the foundations of St. Petersburg, which is another example of how government lies about stuff. But we're going to read the major weather disaster because it fits with our topic of preparedness today. One November evening, a major storm hits England with winds gusting to 140 miles an hour. Tiles are ripped off of roofs and houses are stripped bare. 2,000 chimneys collapse, killing residents while they scramble out of bed. 4,000 oak trees are knocked flat in the southeast England alone. Many ships are sunk with all hands set adrift, hundreds of miles off course. This is a major weather event, and it becomes the first national news story on the weather ever. After, quote, the great storm, end quote, there are not enough building materials to restore houses to livable condition before winter sets in. The price for building materials skyrockets, but all the tile production into the next summer will not finish the task at any price. Wood shingles become the norm. 
The author, Daniel Defoe, calls it an act of God and chastises those who do not believe in God's punishment. The many preachers agree. It's a difficult tally. It's difficult to tally the dead with so many washed away or lost at sea, but the count could be as high as 15,000. That is not counting those who will die because they must spend the winter in a home with a roof with a, in a home open to the sky in a time when England was quite cold, by the way, and it was a bad time to not have a roof. England has been hammered by storms in the past. This is my take by Alex Shrug, but this storm was significant because of the availability of national news coverage. It was not simply a matter to be noted in a diary or a captain's logbook. People were experiencing the disaster as a whole, knowing the troubles of a fellow in the next country and the problem the storm caused for shipbuilding, etc. While this sort of information can be helpful in motivating people to be better prepared, in the modern day, it's become a means to panic people for ratings. Although I've seen meteorologists speak very sensibly about the weather, the graphics they use are the worst kinds of sensationalist tripe. Even when San Francisco was predicted at a high of 69, was predicted, pr predicted at a high of 69 degrees, I saw it colored in deep red on the map as if it were on fire. Coverage of weather disasters can be helpful, especially after it happens. It alerts individuals to the needs of the neighbor. The weather, the weather news becomes a problem when they attempt to predict the weather. Meteorologists can speak sensibly about weather, can speak sensibly about weather for tomorrow. He can even have intelligent things to say about the weather three days from now. Five days, and it is close to guessing. Seven days, someone in three, is three sheets to the wind. Yeah, there's a lot here for me. I think number one, To be fair to meteorologists, um, the knowledge of major systems and, and telling people about them in advance is one of the great things that we have available today. If this storm, the same storm happened in England today, it would be a massive disaster, no doubt, but far less people would die. And it wouldn't just be because of better buildings and stuff like that. It would be because people would know to get the hell out of the way. Now, five days before it hits, they may not know where it's going to hit, but they know that it is that it exists, and some idea of where it's going to hit. They may not know what strength it'll be at when it gets there, but the awareness is huge. I also think it's interesting. If this storm hit England today, do you know what? Do you know what the mainstream would say? It's climate change. I don't think we had that problem in 1703. The more things change, the more they stay the same. My take by Jack Spearco. Next up, let me remind you about the Member Support Brigade and how you can support the work we do here at the Survival Podcast and all of our additional communities. Really, TSP fuels a lot of other things. The Regenerative Agriculture Group on Facebook, check that out if you haven't yet. The TSP Zello channel, the TSP Forum. I'm not real active in the TSP Forum, but I mean, I pay for all of the hosting and everything that goes with it and the development and, and stuff that goes on and maintenance. And, and that all comes from support of the show. And we continue to reinvest what you guys provide us so that we can keep building more and more for you. And uh, if you want to be part of that, join the MSB. But it's not like, you know, a, a PBS station telethon. It's not like you get a handbag when you become a member. You get discounts to like 60 plus vendors. And I'm adding a new one today. It's uber cool. And we have nothing like it. You'll see it come out later this afternoon. It's just awesome. And it's a good discount, 15%. When you start adding up those discounts, it doesn't take you long to recoup your money. And if you are prior service military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty as well, uh, first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, anybody in one of those uh, those worlds or prior service in one of those worlds, you do get a discount to thank you for your service at home and or abroad. Just email me before you, not after you join. TSPC service discount the subject line. I'll send you that discount code. Everybody else, it's still a great deal. You can still support the show and you can get great discounts on great 
great stuff. I mean, what do you see the uber cool thing that I'm bringing you later today? Anyway, with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. Uh, I want to bring on our special guest right now, and uh, we're going to talk about strategic relocation. And with that, hey, Joel, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Guest. Jack, it's great to be with you. I'm a real fan of your uh, system. Man, thank you. I, I, I didn't know that. Um, a lot of people in this world know exactly who you are. Before we get into the main topic of today, though, which is st strategic relocation, can you give people a little bit of background about yourself, how long you've been doing this, and kind of how you got into it in the first place? I know you go all the way back to the 1970s with history in this industry. That's right. I'm one of the founders of the uh, what was called the survival movement back there, and that's still a, a term, although I consider myself, like you, a modern survivalist. Um, I have... Uh, attempted to build, um, I first of all started out in uh, architecture designing high security residences and retreats. And um, I've worked all over the United States and Canada, <clears throat> designed uh, homes in almost every state of the union. But I, I concentrate on making sure that these homes are not like the big black cube you see on the internet with the big three foot thick concrete doors that open and close that everybody knows is a bunker. I specialize in designing homes that are completely conventional looking inside and out. So you simply don't know that this is a specially designed home. In other words, I'm a real believer in concealment, in uh, cover, not advertising what you're going to do, because I think it's important to not make yourself a target someday. I've also done a lot of work in the uh, anal political analysis uh, field. I have a degree in political science. My uncle was W. Kleonskousen, who wrote The Naked Communist, The Naked Capitalist, and many books on the Constitution. So I got an education very early on. In fact, at 17 years old, for my own amusement, I designed my first high-security home, uh, just knowing as my uncle pointed out, that there was so much infiltration in our government, so much corruption and collusion, that it just wasn't going to end very well. So in 1979, I wrote my first book, The, uh, the Secure Home, and that's still in print. And then in the year 2000, I teamed up with Dr. Gary North uh, on the Y2K controversy to consult with people over the air and in blogs on strategic relocation, ended up writing a book on the subject which is now in its third edition, um, teamed up with my son, Andrew, a structural engineer who did most of the graphics and the maps. Um, so it's been a great uh, um, mission over the years to work with the preparedness community. Very cool, man. So when we look at strategic relocation, to me the first thing we should look at is the, the, the potential threats. Uh, and, and kind of at the both the macro nationwide and micro down to the individual level. So what are some of the major threats that you see that require people to even think about relocating for safety and security? Um, and, and how does that apply to what your methodology is for figuring out where to go? Well, that's a big question, Jack. Um, you know, I, I do publish the World Affairs Brief. It's a weekly news analysis service. And the reason I started publishing that uh, clear back in 1983 when I was chairman of the Conservative National Committee in Washington, D.C., is because, you know, it appeared as if there's an awful lot of disinformation out there and an awful lot of hype as well. Uh, I wanted to try to take a, a point of view that was very realistic. I'm no Pollyanna. I don't think everything is fine in the world by any means. Uh, but I think I have a better than 
uh, average understanding of the powers that be, these globalists that frankly control both political parties. That's why we never get any change in the United States. Um, and so I've done a lot of analysis. I've got a free market economic background as well as a political science background. I've done a lot of analysis on economic collapse, for example, which is, you know, constantly being paraded before us. And covering that as the first major threat, because, you know, when I consult with people on strategic relocation, that's the number one thing that people mention when I ask them, what are you preparing for? What's that which is driving you? And they say economic collapse. But I've done a lot of analysis on that, and I don't think, Jack, that we're facing economic collapse, not because if we were subject to pure fundamentals, it shouldn't collapse. It should. But I think the collapse uh, sky is falling crowd failed to understand the powers of the, the Fed to continue to keep things going. First of all, they don't understand that there's never been an economic collapse without a war. In other words, you've got to actually stop people physically from bartering, hustling, making a living, uh, doing whatever they can to survive in order to have an economic collapse like Germany had when the Russians invaded at the end of World War II. That was a pure collapse. Um, even in hyperinflation conditions such as in Weimar. Well, let me hold you there because I just want to clarify something. I know people are like chomping at the bit for They're like going, but what about the Great Depression? That was before the war. You didn't say you couldn't have a depression. You said you couldn't have a collapse, and those are different. That's exactly right. There's a real difference. There was only 25% of people now in the depression that were out of work. That means 75% of people were, were gainfully employed, probably actually about 65% because a lot of people, some people aren't working, uh, the elderly, etc. But the reason that was so severe is because people had no depth in their ec economic uh, survival you know, they had no storage. They had nothing. They were even when they had jobs, they were living from hand to mouth. There was no reserves. You know, today we have uh, welfare system backups. I'm not in favor of that as a libertarian, but I'm just saying that we have that. We have food stamps. We have relatives. We have two or three cars, even people out of job, two or three televisions, tons of things that they can you know sell at garage sales. So it's really a different situation. But let me analyze very quickly why hyperinflation cannot happen, even though Peter Schiff is right. The only tool the Fed has is inflation. The point is to have hyperinflation, you've got to have two things. One, you've got to have a fairly moderate money supply that you can double and triple and get it you know, really inflating. We've got a huge money supply. I estimate the money supply to be between two. And this is monetized money meaning that's actually been printed over the t years. We got between two and three hundred trillion dollars. That means the Fed could print 20 trillion dollars a year and not exceed 10 percent of the money supply. You see how hard it is. to. Yeah, no, I do. I do. I, I mean, I remember I'm, I'm you know, a child of the 70s and 80s. I remember if the Dow went up 100 bucks in the day, it was like, wow. And now it's like, yeah, right. And that's just that's about right. quantity, right? That's right. But you know, the, the other key thing, the second thing you've got to have to have hyperinflation is indexing. Now, indexing means that the government has the power or has taken the power to dictate that everybody's salaries will be increased, increased to keep pace with inflation. How do you think Germans got wheelbarrows full of 100,000 mark bills denominated in a million marks? You know, you just can't. We couldn't get a wheelbarrow full of $100 bills, okay? <laughs> The, the reason is because the government mandated everybody's salaries be increased with inflation. 
And our government doesn't have that. Uh, you just can't get there. What you get if you don't have indexing, you get stagflation. What that means is prices, let's say they rise 15 to 20 percent. People stop buying because they can't afford gas anymore at $15 a gallon. They, they drive much less and you get a deflationary uh, feeling in the economy and you get like we had in the 70s, stagflation. So that's what draws hyperinflation back to reality is the fact that you outstrip people's ability to to raise their salaries or keep pace with inflation. So without indexing, you can't get to hyperinflation. Now, the other threat that everybody says is the collapse of the dollar. We hear that almost daily. But you've got to remember that the dollar is 10 times larger than any other currency in the world. There's no other currency that could replace it without massive inflation. Europe would have to inflate their currency 10 times. Uh, so would uh, Britain in order to replace the dollar. Nobody's going to trust the Chinese yuan you know, to replace the dollar because it's totally untransparent. And one of the reasons why there's so much pressure to back the dollar is because so many countries are dependent upon the Fed for secret bailouts. Like Europe gets these uh, quick loans, these short-term loans that keep their banking system afloat. So they're not about to pull out of the dollar. And the countries, such as the BRICS countries, are on the rocks financially anyway. They don't have the power to pull the plug on the dollar, even though they've stopped trading between themselves among the dollar. Uh, you know, Brazil, still 70% of its economy is trading with Europe and the United States, so they have to deal with the dollar. Mm. Uh, so, you see, when you really get down to the nitty-gritty of de analyzing the collapse scenario, it just cannot happen as long as the Fed maintains, and I see no indication they intend to change this, of keeping inflation below a real rate of 10%. Mm. Now, real inflation, according to John Williams of Shadow Stats, is about... Six to seven percent. And I agree with that. I think that's, I don't think the number from the government's BS, but I also don't think it's 25 percent for God's sakes. No, no, it isn't. But it is, it is about six to seven percent, but it's been that way for 20 years, Jack. Mm -hmm. In other words, we've been living with that and adjusting to that, and we can continue to do so without a collapse. Now, my feeling in terms of threats, and this uh, probably is too long of an analysis for our interview today, but I really feel strongly after analyzing world affairs for 20 years, that there has to be a reason why the globalists have been building Russia and China as enemies. A lot of Americans don't know that we gave Russia the most of their weapon systems. We brought the Bolsheviks to power with $20 million of the gold that Jacob Schiff gave to, um, uh, I forgot his name right now. Uh, but in any case, uh, you know, we gave Russia the first enriched uranium to explode their first uh, nuclear weapon a year after Hiroshima. We gave them the rest of the plans that they couldn't steal from the Manhattan Project. We brought Mao Zedong to power by cutting off aid to Chiang Kai-shek. We brought Castro to power by cutting off the aid to you know Batista. We brought the Sandinistas to power in Nicaragua by cutting off aid to uh, Samosa. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And somebody has to explain and it's not because these people are communists. My my uncle, you know, in his book, The Naked Communist, explores how many communists there were in the State Department. And he was right. But what he didn't realize, there were so many non-communists, which we know now to be globalists, that were protecting the communists. In other words, they were using communism to break down the Western social order so they could come in under the aegis of conflict creation and give us a solution which we would never accept were it not for the wars that they create. 
That's what's happened in the war on terror, which is a phony war uh, in large part created by United States intelligence services and British intelligence services. But the key is not that they're taking, I mean, they have diminished our freedoms through the excuse of defending against the war on terror. But you can't get Americans into a new world order, a global government, a militarized global government without another war. And that's why I think they're they're heading us towards a third world war. And that's my major analysis that uh, they're setting us up to take a nuclear first strike, not against American cities, even though China has threatened, you know, we can take out your cities. They don't want to be viewed as the bully of the world, in my opinion. They want to take down the bully of the world, the U.S., and that's the reputation we've been getting by intervening around the world. But they only intend, and I think our government knows this, they only intended to do a preemptive nuclear strike on American military facilities mm. and blackmail us into submission. Because both Russia and China as communist nations, uh, and I say that uh, with a great deal of expertise, I mean, Russia, the fall of the Soviet Union really was a carefully crafted deception. The Communist Party went underground, faked its own demise in order to get Western aid and trade, which built up their oil industry and many other things, which we know about now. But they are rearming now and they're starting to rebuild the Soviet uh, uh, structure. And China, of course, is rearming to a tremendous extent. And our government continues to uh, allow technology to flow to those countries through, through and money and money and money. Yeah. And to China, for example, a lot of Americans don't know that Israel is allowed to sell all of the medic, uh, the military technology that we give to Israel. They sell it for a profit to China. So China's getting U.S. military technology through the back door. That's why when you look at their military hardware, it's all a copy of either Russian or U.S. Uh, you know military equipment. So our government knows this. Then you know what's really funny. They have their our government is disarming. And this is why I have said in my world affairs brief that I believe our government is going to absorb a nuclear first strike. Mm. They're, they're disarming in order to basically induce Russia and China to say, come on, we're weaker now, you can take us. It's not that they intend to lose the war. What they intend to do, and I think this is very important in terms of threat analysis, they intend to induce Russia and China when they get confident enough to do a nuclear first strike on our military forces. And why do I think that? Because of, of a presidential decision directive during the Clinton administration, 1997, he signed PDD 60, which instructed, which changed our entire nuclear posture. He instructed our nuclear forces uh, to prepare to absorb a nuclear first strike rather than re rely on launch on warning. Now, if you know anything about nuclear technology, Jack, launch on warning means that when we detect with our satellites a launch against our country, we launch our missiles before their missiles arrive. That means right. the one who launches second wins yeah. because their missiles hit empty silos. Ours are already in the air yeah. and, and retargeted to hit live targets there. Now, As a cautionary thing, though, I, I think looking at account of detected launch has some relevance through history because there was, for instance – I don't remember exactly when, but there was a story of a rush. I think it was a Russian colonel who, on this new system of analysis, detected uh, a launch of like six U.S. missiles, and they had the same policy. You, you detect a launch, you retaliate. And he made a judgment call that basically this didn't look like what he was trained for. If the Americans were going to launch missiles, they weren't going to launch freaking six. 
So he, at very great risk to himself, did not report this up command, did not respond, and then it turned out that it was some kind of weird reflection or whatever. So I can kind of see where it depends on what you're looking at. Do you just launch immediately? Well, you know, I ha I'm familiar with that story, Jack, and I've analyzed it. Uh, it looks as if that and there were a couple of other scare stories was done to help propagate the anti-nuclear lobby in the United States to push for more disarmament. We can't afford to have a mistake, so we've got to disarm. Uh, I don't believe, in fact, those false attacks ever occurred. In fact, our satellite imagery now is so sensitive that we can detect, you know, fires on the ground, let alone missile launches, you know, with the heat signature. I don't sure. think there's much chance of a... Um, Of a, of a mistaken launch and the, and the Russians, of course, have much higher technology now in their satellites as well. But here's the significance of PDD-60. The military forces, and I've talked to, you know, some of our missileers and things, they still practice for launch on warning. But they took away in PDD-60 the alternate launch codes so that in the absence of a presidential uh, authorization through the uh, suitcase that they carry around for the president, They cannot launch. There's no alternate launch codes, even for the submarines. And so if our administration wants to, in fact, force our country to absorb a nuclear first rate, all they got to do is deny the launch codes or pretend that there's a communications outage and they don't get through. But the mere fact that they told our government to prepare or told our missile force to prepare to uh, retaliate after a first strike kind of gives us a hint Uh, of something that I think is very suicidal. Now, it's not suicidal in the sense that our government intends to lose, but I think they intend to jerk us around through a nuclear first strike on American forces so that the West, in a panic, says, how do we defend ourselves now? And our leaders come out of their bunkers and say, oh, we got the answer. We can join together in a militarized global government, and then we'll have the forces to prosecute this war. And I think that's the only way that they would talk Americans into giving up sovereignty and joining military forces. So who, who, in that scenario, where Russia and China are both the enemy, who are we going to partner up with that, that, that has the wherewithal to, to be part of that other than maybe England? Good question. England and Europe, of course, and I think the way that NATO has been pumped up as this great war machine against terror is really because NATO is going to be the core of the militarized global government. I think our U.S. military forces will be taken out in this first strike. In fact, it's very telling that in 1997, Clinton unilaterally agreed to keep 50% of our nuclear missile submarines in port at any one time to make sure that they could be more easily targeted as a gesture that we had no hostility to Russia. Think of that. Do you realize that's still invoked today? Over 50% of our ballistic missile subs are in either Bangor, Maine, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Bangor, uh, Washington, near Seattle or Kings Bay, Georgia. And that makes them more vulnerable, of course, uh, to attack. That leaves at most five or six submarines out there. And none of the warheads on the Trident missiles are capable of penetrating hardened targets. And, of course, Russia has Yamanto Mountain, this underground bunker city in the Urals that is as big as Washington, D.C. metro area underground. And so, you see, we don't know what the Russians are building. We don't have and never had inspectors uh, in Yamanto Mountain. We don't know if they've got missile factories in there, how many stockpiled ballistic missiles they've got on rails. 
We know nothing, and yet we keep disarming. Americans don't realize that we have just taken off all the three warheads on the Minuteman three missiles and replaced them a single warhead. That's a triple reduction, and Russia and China are building new missiles all of the time. I mean, this is just crazy. Do you think we're really doing that, or do you think that's what we're doing publicly? Well, because I mean, I don't trust anything they say. I mean, you can you can never tell, but I can tell you that I have contacts in the missile forces, and they have removed the warheads. So we are disarming now. I don't. I'm not a fool. Jack. I'm not really asking it that way. Like I know that if they say that, they probably did that. But does that mean they went away or they went somewhere else, or are they building other things that we don't know? You see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. if you're going to play this suicidal looking game. And you don't plan on losing, then you got to have another end of this that you say you're going to be able to come out at some point and say, well, look at what we really have. Absolutely. And I think that we have secret weapon systems that we intend to bring out, not to defend the country, but to prosecute the war afterwards. One of those weapon systems, and there's good evidence for this, is that the Star Wars system that Reagan, you know, all the controversy in, about Star Wars was actually built. And that we do have space-based missile interceptors. What I hypothesize is that in absorbing a nuclear first strike, it gives the globalists a chance to drum everybody into a new world order and agree that, yeah, we got to do that to save ourselves. Then they bring out these space-based interceptors to keep any further nuclear attack from occurring while we regroup. Additionally, I think that the globalists intend to cut a deal with China to betray Russia sometime during the war because Russia can't win a two-front war any more than Hitler could when Stalin betrayed him after making a pact with Hitler and then attacked his rear. And then, and this is a very key, interesting thing, because then the globalists can say after the war is won, oh, we have to keep our military together. We can't go back to individual national sovereignty because we've got this huge Cold War enemy of China now. And so it justifies keeping a powerful global military and not giving freedom back to nations like we did after World War II. Anyway, that's the threat I see that is most uh, important for us to think about. Because for in one thing, remember, they are planning a new currency. They are planning, um, you know, camps uh, for dissidents. Uh, NSA surveillance has not stopped despite what the government is saying. They're continuing to build lists of dissidents, and that's what NSA spying is mostly about because they control most of the terror leadership anyway around the world. So that really isn't – that's just the excuse, but they are really building lists of dissidents, and I think there will be a move. I think, for example, people who believe in conspiracy and government and uh, – in preparedness uh, and maybe even some very staunch evangelical Christians are going to be the Jews of World War III. We're going to be the ones rounded up in the name of security because we may not be viewed as supporting our troops because we're not supporting our government and its global war on terror. So with all of that in mind, if somebody was going to relocate, where would you suggest that they go specifically within the United States? Well, that's a great question. Uh, my, the basic threat, by the way, uh, for most people is population density. It's not nuclear targets. If you're in a nuclear target, and we have to remember that a nuclear weapon going off, an air burst, has a circular air probable destruction area of about five miles. And so if you're outside that five-mile circle, you're probably going to survive the blast. I don't believe anybody needs to build a bomb shelter in the sense of with blast valves. 
and with two and three feet of concrete. If you're in a blast... Can you hold there a second? Because there's a very important thing that you're hitting on there that I, I don't think people get. So, like, for instance, when the, when the, the reactors had the meltdown over in, in, in Japan, yes. and I had my audience freaking the hell out, buying potassium iodine, all just going nuts, the whole world's going to end. And I'm like, this is not like it's not a problem at all, but unless you're eating fish out of the South Japanese Sea or you live there, um, you probably can just chill... And what I what I couldn't get across to people is how many freaking nuclear detonations there have been above surface since the first one, and 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 how it's not the it's not safe. I'm not for God's sakes. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying there's not potential for other you know cancers to be developed as, as, as fallout and whatever. But this this concept that if you know if, if 20 nuclear bombs go off, the world's over. I I don't think people have any idea about the reality of that. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Jack. The whole uh, disinformation about nuclear winter, that everything's going to die, there's no sun going to shine, you know, it's not true. You could put all of the nuclear weapons in the world on Mount St. Helens, and you wouldn't remove as much dirt and rock as it did when it blew its top. Hmm. So don't tell me that it's the end of the world. In fact, our government intends to survive. The Russians intend to survive. Our government's building deep underground bunkers, but they're not warning us. Clearly, this isn't for terrorism, Jack. And when retired, you know, I'm in the business of designing high security residences, and I happen to know contractors who have uh, had uh, retired CIA, DEA, government officials in Aspen, Colorado, and other places build big bunkers underneath their houses. Now, I know how to design a much less expensive so that it doesn't cost people an arm and a leg, but you can have fallout protection, and it's fairly easy to survive a nuclear war if you've got a fallout shelter. And it doesn't cost thousands of dollars. In fact, I don't care for the the variable shelters, the big steel round tank type shelters you put in your backyard. The reason is a lot of people don't realize, you know, you've got to have ventilation Mm-hmm. Those vents have sticking out of the ground. You can camouflage them with bushes, but I'll tell you, you can hear every word going on in a shelter if you put your ear to one of those vent vents, and they can be sabotaged. Not to mention the fact that every neighbor is going to know that that crane and puts that <laughs> thing in the backyard that what's in there. And when you try to go into that shelter through that hatch in the dirt, there's going to be maybe 15, 20 neighbors there wanting to get in too. What are you going to do? So. I prefer that people design and and put in uh, safe rooms, which are designed for fallout and concealed safe rooms inside an existing house under a new addition, under a garage, someplace where people don't expect a basement. And and then you can do it as part of construction. You can call it a tornado shelter. You can call it just storage room and then fit it out later with the kinds of things that make it necessary for a shelter. You know, my secure home book, we cover all of those details, how to design those, how to get the equipment, how to buy military grade filtration. Although we have a lot of cheaper alternatives like, um, there's, you know, some Honeywell filters on regular air systems with carbon uh, filters on it and zeolite that act almost as good as an MBC filter for about $300 instead of $6,000. So, there's a lot of, of techniques that people can do to prepare for war. It's not something they need, need to panic, but they do need to relocate out of blast zones. And I also believe that people need to be prepared to get out of major high-density population areas, hopefully before this hits, because there will be mass exoduses. 
You know, you think Katrina is bad with the freeways stacked up and traffic and everything blocked. That's what we're going to see all throughout the East Coast and around every major metro area. And so it's important for people to watch what's going on the news, to have advance warning of when these wars are going to come. Um, as a, if, I'll give people a hint. I think the trigger event for World War III is going to be North Korea attacking South Korea. There has to be a reason, Jack, why the U.S. treats North Korea, a full nuclear power with the missiles to deliver them, who have just claimed they've got a hydrogen bomb. We doubt that, but they're claiming it. And the U.S. does nothing, and yet they've been threatening Iran for decades with destruction. Mm-hmm. And they haven't even got a nuclear missile yet, or I mean a nuclear uh, weapon yet. And that's because I think the globalists know that North Korea is the trigger event for China and Russia. That's the little bad boy they're going to sick on South Korea. It will force the U.S. probably to, in order to stop an invasion of two million men coming across the border, they'll probably have to use tactical nuclear weapons to stop them, which they have in, in Korea. And China will say, ah, first use, you started it, and then they'll launch a preemptive strike on U.S. military forces. I think that See, now that brings up an interesting thing, because I've been thinking about this the whole time you said it, because I'm not a big believer in the concept of us dropping nuclear bombs in Russia or Russia dropping them inside the United States. I think that has a, a, a potential to go full-on wholesale. And I actually don't know that we're all the enemies that we say they are, Many for many reasons, because of the... The factual information you brought up at the beginning about how much we've actually empowered them, and they know that, and your information about uh, inflation as well. So if you if you if you sink the U.S., you sink everybody. We're that ship that the lifeboats can't get far enough away from. So when I look at the history of superpowers and warfare, now you're hitting where I think the bigger concepts are, which is proxy warfare. So that we can create as much fear and, 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 and whatever, but Russia doesn't get bombed, China doesn't get bombed, the United States doesn't get bombed, or if it is, it's a very limited exchange, and there's some kind of, you know, we thought youth were doing this, and then there's this kind of stalemate thing, and then there's this proxy that all of this stuff can be enacted through, because when I look at the goal here, and I agree with you, the goal is, is global governance, I think Everybody we're talking about is okay with that. If there's anybody that isn't, it's Russia. It's certainly not China. I think China would be happy to be part of this whole thing. If, if there's a if there's a, an anti hegemon, it, it, it's 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 Putin in Russia. Well, you know that is a a prominent feeling among many libertarians, and um, you know, in fact, there's many conservatives that think there won't be nuclear war because the globalists actually control Russia and China. And I don't think so. I think it's a one-way street that is a building up enemies in order – and they don't control when this war is going to happen because they have to actually wait till Russia and China strikes. Now, sure, about sure. Whether, whether or not there's a strike, there are documents uh, coming uh, that have come out of China in the last two years talking about nuclear war plans to take out the United States in combination with Russia. Now – Our government, you know, is in denial about that. They put up a report annually about the Chinese threat and then they downplay it. They don't even put out a report about the Russian threat. And I've talked to people in our intelligence services and they've got a blanket ban on criticizing Russia. Um, when in 1997, when the New York Times put a front page headline about Yamanto Mountain, this great big bunker city being built, they asked the CIA and the CIA said, we're not worried. It's just defensive. And I asked, you know, what do you mean? How do you know it's defensive? You've never been in there. To this day, 
20 years later, they've never been in there. And yet they continue to give excuse. They claim, for example, that Russia is in compliance with all the treaties, except for the intermediate nuclear forces, which we know they violated. But we still keep, you know, going along with our part of the disarmament, even though we know that Russia is violating. And they kicked all our inspectors out two years ago. But we have no inspectors in there. And yet we still allow them to inspect all of our factories. I mean, this looks like a one way suicidal thing. If it were two-way, if there were mutual collusion, you would have seen in the Verona transcripts coming out of the fall of the Soviet Union, you would have seen transcripts about open collusion between them, but you don't have anything. What you do have is the KGB saying, man, the CIA people are stupid. You know, the, the government of the United States just keeps giving it. They sold us miniature ball-bearing technology through Kissinger so that we could merv our missiles. I mean, we didn't do that because we're stupid. We did that to build an enemy. So I really think that we ought not to bet on the, the fact that there may not be a nuclear war. I think when you look at the long-term evidence of the U.S. building these forces, building these two countries, uh, I don't think it's benevolent reasons. I think they're wanting to induce a strike, and uh, certainly we that, see... Uh, well, I'm not actually saying there wouldn't be any nuclear exchange. I'm actually saying a nuclear exchange anywhere gets the hysteria, the hype, the fear up to extreme levels. If, if South Korea nukes uh, North Korea nukes South Korea. We deploy tactical. China and the U.S. go to the edge of World War III. Russia says you better not do it. We find a stalemate, and we've made mushroom clouds. The the hysteria from Europe through the United States is insane. Whether there's any actual deployment uh, intercontinentally or not, if that makes sense. Well, obviously, you know, that's a, a possibility. I just don't want to bet on it is what I'm saying. In other words, I understand that. I'm just saying there are. Yeah, I, I don't ever like to present to my audience that this is what's going to happen because none of us really know. This is this is your instinct and this is my instinct. And these are different ways we see this could play out. That's right. Absolutely. But when you look at the numbers of weapons of the nuclear uh, missiles and warheads that Russia and China are building, um, it just doesn't pay to bet on them not being used. Now, I happen to believe there's going to be a limited strike on America, not on American cities. And so I think people can prepare and survive this coming war. But I think you have to do so realistically. And one of those things is I think that uh, it is both Chinese and Russian nuclear doctrine that they'll precede a nuclear physical strike on American military forces with an EMP strike. Over, and it takes six high-altitude nuclear weapons to blanket the U.S. grid and take it all down. Not one. So forget about Iran, forget about a terrorist doing a, throwing a missile up and, and, and taking down the grid. It takes six. Uh, so only Russia and China have the ability to do this, and I think they will to soften up. But it means that without grid power, within three days, uh, you know, there's going to be real social unrest, uh, famine, and, uh, you know, it may take uh, many months to get some of the power back on. And so I think the social unrest factor, and that's why I say in strategic relocation, why high population density is your biggest enemy, whether it's an earthquake, whether it's a, a you know, massive famine, people are just so dependent on government services within a metropolitan area, they simply cannot survive. And think about growing a garden in your suburban backyard. You have hundreds of people peering over the fence in the spring waiting for the stuff to get ripe. You're never going to harvest anything. So it's very important to realize that people have to prepare, even though they can't move. And I'm very realistic about this. People can't leave their job, most of them. But they can prepare to relocate, for example, on the periphery of major metro so they can be the first out with their retreat plan. 
They can prepare for places, safe havens further out in the rural countryside where you can grow a garden, where you can stockpile stuff. And um, that's why I believe in concealed storage so that if there is social unrest, that people can hide what they have. Uh, they don't have to confront people with weapons. I believe in the Second Amendment and defending yourself, but I still believe it's unwise to think that you can shoot your way out of a massive social unrest situation. It's better and wiser to have concealment in these safe rooms that I recommend uh, so that you can get out of harm's way. So, but back to the, for the, where this all started, like, what are the, how, how do you rate the regions here? Like, like okay. where are people should be looking either for relocation now or for prepared relocation in the future? Well, in strategic relocation, we spend the first part of the book talking about international relocation because there's a big move to that. And I'm not a big fan, having lived in a lot of foreign countries and speaking multiple foreign languages. It's not going to be as rosy as people think. You know, they look at this expat lifestyle out there and cheap living and there's all kinds of websites extolling the virtues of that. But I'll tell you, nobody's going to escape what happens to globalism and war someday. Even though you may escape nuclear physical destruction, you can't escape the fact that all of these countries depend on tourism. Tourism is going to stop during the war. Those countries are going to start to probably look towards expatriates. Their bank accounts, as Mexico has confiscated dollar accounts twice now, um, confiscating, you know, perhaps foreign-owned property. Uh, lots of things could happen. You just don't have the kind of security. I mean, I point out, you know... I've lived all over Latin America, and you may have a few thousand libertarians in Latin America who really understand the battle for liberty. You have millions in the United States, potential resistors of the global New World Order, who say, we won't take it, we don't want it, and we will band together in safer places. So in my ratings, when I get into the United States and Canada, I first of all look at population density. And uh, but I also talk about the type of government. You know, there are certain state governments that are just as tyrannical as the federal government, California, Illinois, New York. Um, and, you know, in terms of gun rights, uh, they're all over the map. We cover all of those issues in strategic relocation in general. And then under each state, we break down all of those threats and give a state not only a, a general rating from one to five, and there's only two five-star states in the book, uh, Utah and Idaho, uh, but there's a lot of four-star states. And it doesn't mean that you can't survive in a two- or three-star state. I mean, you can. And I talk about how you get and find um, areas out of the major refugee flows, how to pick a location you know, that can't be easily found, how to... Even around major metro areas, where are the safer areas around Atlanta, for example? And uh, But, you know, states like Hawaii, I've got a, a zero rating because it's very, very difficult to survive there unless you're on the big island because it's so totally dependent on, um, you know, shipping everything from their fuel for their electricity. Um, Florida is a very is a zero rated state. You've lived there in Florida, I know, uh, in Jacksonville, which is a nuclear target. Yep. But you see that the problem with Florida, for example, that people have to think about is you've got two major highways leading out of the state. You have millions of people, and when there's famine and there's social unrest, you can imagine the difficulty of trying to get out of that state. And uh, so, those are some of the strategic aspects I look at. So, generally, the highest rated states are in the Intermountain West. Uh, the lowest rated states are the East Coast and the populated areas on, on the West Coast. But the reason the Intermountain West 
is so highly rated. Uh, the states of northern Arizona, uh, western Colorado, Utah, Idaho, um, parts of Montana and uh, eastern and Oregon and Washington is because there's, they have deserts that separate them from all the major population centers. I mean, Salt Lake City is the center of that area. You know, it's 700 miles to um, uh, to Los Angeles through trackless deserts. It's 800 miles to San Francisco. It's 900 miles or 800 miles to Portland, Oregon, all through trackless deserts and 500 miles from Denver through huge Rocky Mountains. So it's going to be very difficult for without electricity. So no gas is going to get pumped for people to get to these intermountain areas where you can have some security. Now, for those, of course, who, who can't live there, uh, you know, who have jobs elsewhere, there are other safe places in the Midwest. You know, there's a lot of farm ground. It's actually cheaper than the Intermountain West. A lot of uh, places. North Texas has uh, uh, a lot of good places. Um, I worry about Texas in terms of the Mexican influence. It's becoming a Mexican state like California. Uh, but still, there's a lot of good places in the northern part of Texas. Um, you know, where people can find good retreat places. But it's developing a contingency plan, Jack, that I'm uh, really am big on, is that everybody can't relocate, but you've got to plan ahead and you've got to think. For example, I even talk about how to not get trapped by the beltways in major metro areas. People don't realize the mm. beltways are like a moat. And if they're clogged freeways, even those on-ramps and off-ramps and the underpasses that are at an on-ramp, they're going to be clogged. You won't be able to get outside of that beltway unless you've looked on Google Earth and you focus in on that beltway and move around and you can find a few over and underpasses over the freeway where there is not an exit. There's no entrance ramp. And those are the ones that are going to allow you to have an escape route past those beltways. Little hints like that are some of the practical things I put in strategic relocation. I mean, you're talking about areas like if we look at Idaho, it's a million and change population. You look at Montana, it's a million and change. Uh, we look at, uh, I don't remember what else you said, but Utah, Utah, you know, it's, it's a fairly low population compared to the right. size of the state. Wyoming's a 600 ish thousand or something like that. So that's all great if you're relocating there now, but if, if you had this, 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 this concept in your head that, you know, That's the best place to go, those areas. You pump a million people even, uh, one, you know, what is it, a third of a percent of the population into there, you start to have resource issues really quick. I mean, part of why people are able to live there and live off the land as much as they do and all is because of their population. You, you, you triple the population of Montana and, and every other guy killing an elk once a year isn't going to happen anymore. No, absolutely right. These, uh, the Intermountain West has limited resources, uh, But they are pretty good resources uh, as long as the population. I mean, it could probably handle double the existing population. Uh, but as a practical fact, only a small percentage of the population is going to be prepared, is aware of the kinds of things we're talking about. And of those, only a, a smaller, much smaller percentage are in the position of relocating. So, you know, my book's been out for ever since uh, 1998, and uh, yeah, there's a few hundred thousand people that have relocated because of that. And look, I live in these high-security areas, and they still aren't overflowing with people, still plenty of room. Uh, so I'm not sure that enough people will wake up that will actually threaten the good areas. Okay. Because, I mean, people probably ask you all the time, like, where is the safest place for me to go? 
Like if if, if I could go anywhere I want, where where should? Because there are people that I mean, for instance, I'm not going anywhere right now. I'm pretty happy with the way I have things set up. But if I wanted to relocate, if I have a DSL connection, I can run my business on the freaking moon. So I could theoretically pick up and go anywhere I want to in the United States. So how would you answer that question? Well, I also answer this way. You know, what's the safest place for me is not necessarily for you because I don't care if you have all the money in the world. There are trade-offs. And let me explain. Safety is inversely proportional to people. In other words, you get out where there's no people and you get into the safest areas. But then you've got compromise and costs. You've got transportation costs. You've got everything you've got to get comes from a long distance. You've got to truck it out there. You've got the problem of ever finding a repairman. So you see, there really is no such thing as a the safe place. It really depends on what a person's situation is, and everything is somewhat of a compromise. Now, that that said, that doesn't mean that uh, Los Angeles is as safe as, as Utah. Never will be because you've got 20 million people in that basin. But the point is, is that there are costs that people have to realize. The more rural you get, the more cost it's going to be in terms of building, uh, transportation, commuting, And uh, you can only handle that, really, if you're kind of independent, work by the Internet or are retired. But people who have a job have to normally do what I call a two-step contingency plan. They have to have a city residence, and then they have to develop a farm or retreat property, you know, within a certain distance and, and a transportation plan to get there. I actually prefer that, Jack, because I think there is a real problem or real threat of government coming after people who are dissidents someday. And so I think it's important to have a all of your official pointers going to a suburban residence or a condo or something and not pointing to your retreat. So I don't recommend generally, if people can afford this, to live in a retreat full time. I like to see people, um, you know, have a, a normal uh, profile in residence and then provide for something that's off-grid or off uh, the uh, the government list. How do you feel about people that do the whole, we're going to get three or four families and partner up and do this type of thing? That's an idea that I've been doing this now almost 10 years, and I want to like that idea, but in the end I almost never do because I I see it destroy relationships. I always see that one side feels they do more than the other, Um, I think the only way maybe it could work is if you were to find an area with a, you know, a certain number of acreage and everybody has their own piece to do their thing with that the, the whole like commune style thing, maybe it just doesn't, you know, maybe communes just don't work really well for libertarians and anarchists. I don't know, but it seems like most of these people that I've seen go with this group mentality that way end up not friends 10 years later. Yeah, you're exactly right, Jack. I've consulted in this area for over 40 years, and I've consulted with almost all of the group groups that have tried to put together survival or preparedness communities, including the Bogrides community, which fell apart, you know, in Idaho. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the problems is even the ones that come the closest to working are people who have a religious angle and they're part of the same church group, et cetera. But even then it's very difficult because even doctrinal problems or a strong leader can cause, you know, a faction, uh, and, and the group, group to fracture. So it's important to, um, 
to realize that these things almost never work. Um, plus the fact that whenever you get a group like the Rajneesh in Oregon, you know, they had a, a community there and, um, but they got such a bad reputation. The Oregonians literally drove them out. You had an Idaho, a group trying to create a subdivision called the Citadel. This violates all the rules. First of all, you never develop a, a development with a name like the fortress or the citadel. You just, you put a target on your back and people start to resent, oh, you're part of that survival community. And then, of course, the government and the Southern Poverty Law Conference blackballs you as somebody who's a domestic terrorist. So that's the problem with joining together groups. Here's what I recommend to people because all of the groups that I've dealt with eventually fall apart. Everyone, without exception. So what I recommend is you build your own network, but informally. In other words, you move into an area and you don't even have to live together. In fact, it's a benefit not to live together if you've got two Correct. or three. You know, buy something in the same general area, then you network. Because if you get hunted down someday or your your property becomes untenable, you've got to go outside of that to a place where you can find a refuge. So it's really not the best thing to have everybody in the same Area, But to network together, to share some resources, to know who you can trust, that you have to build in your own community. And that's why I found that people that move out here to these the Intermountain West, they find a lot of preparedness-oriented people. I mean, for example, in the states of Idaho and Utah where Mormons predominate, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of preparedness. And I'm not saying that, that they're the best uh, in terms of understanding or being aware about what's going on politically, but they are preparedness oriented and no community is going to knit together probably faster than when you have large groups of Mormons because they have the alternate government system in their church that every five families, you know, has somebody to look to and reports to somebody else and they have storage. They have their own welfare system. They have their own welfare system. They do. I mean, they have jobs where you can find jobs where you can go get resources when you're unemployed, and they have a much greater level of accountability to utilize that system. But if you're in that system, you're going to meet those requirements because you've been brought up to do so. That's right. You know, there is a trust within their leadership because people can remove any leadership that is unworthy. All the, you know, Every year a vote comes up and all you got to do is raise your hand and say, this guy's not worthy and he's out. And uh, so it really works pretty well. And that's why I think in social unrest, the communities where you have good evangelical Christian base, such as in Southern Idaho or Mormon base, they'll knit together faster than any other group that is disparate. And I think that's an important factor in relocation as well. Okay, so what advice do you have for people that just say, well, that's all great, but can't do it. i got to stay where I'm at. Yeah, and most people are like that, and I'm very realistic. In strategic relocation, I cover very carefully how to develop a contingency plan. And as I mentioned before, I think it's very important that you can relocate within the city that you have to stay in. You don't, you aren't stuck, you know, in an area that's right on a major, you know, um, road that you that may be blocked you can relocate to the peripheries of these major metropolitan areas and um, you know i try to talk about that in each map that we give of uh, in every state we talk about the major metros and how to relocate around those major metro areas then developing a contingency plan a lot of people you know who contact me say you know i'm an apartment what can i do in an apartment house and frankly, not much. You know, you can't remodel. You can't put in a shelter uh, in an apartment house. But what I've tried to tell people is my analysis of the war threat, which is, I think, the major significant threat coming, isn't 
coming until the middle to the or the beginning of the middle of the next decade, which means people have at least four or five years to prepare. So people ought not to accept their situation and say, well, I'm, I'm stuck. I don't have I mean, start to say, start to think about changing jobs. Start to think about expanding your skill level because people, you know, who are totally dependent on a very high tech world are going to have to revert to skills and barter and other things. Uh, and so I think one has to prepare for multiple, um, you know, types of, of employment and not just employment, but self-employment. And, uh, you know, I've I've changed jobs three or four times during my life. Even when I was going to college and, and studying uh, law, for example, I took uh, courses in welding. I took machining. I took other things in home building so that I've learned to repair all my cars and and, and build my own home. So you can do that and still be a professional if you start to work at it. And I think we've got time. That's the good news. Uh, the bad news is when the thing really comes down, when there is war, a nuclear strike and an EMP, it's going to come down and stay down for a long time. So we really have to be prepared for the long haul, not just for short-term uh, food storage. Gotcha. So um, what contingency plans then can somebody use that says – all right, I'm not going to leave now, but I want to develop a way out because you talk about all these refugees, and here's here's my deal with that. What creates refugees in in reality isn't just the lack of something, but the belief that I can go somewhere else and there'll be something there, right? So you you, you don't you don't see, for instance, when you have Syrian refugees, them heading out into the the Turkish desert. Right. They they, they want to go somewhere where there's resources. So the big problem I see if you have a situation where there's enough damage to this country by any means, whether it's World War Three, whether it's a, a solar flare, whatever it is, whether it's some kind of uh, cyber attack that puts the grid down where that's going to go, then everybody's going to want to go at once. They're going to converge on the places that they believe they'll be better off, that there's going to be some kind of relief effort or something going on. So. The last thing you want to be is caught up in that because that's all the people that have no idea what they're doing, no preparedness whatsoever, and are just wandering aimlessly from one point to another. Even if you know where you want to go, if they're in the way, it's a problem, right? So you need to, if you're going to say, well, if it gets bad enough, I'm going to get the hell out of here, how does a person that maybe can't afford a second location develop that type of contingency? Very good question. Not an easy answer, but I have covered that and talk about it in my various books. Uh, essentially, you want to prepare a – first of all, the best thing you can do is have advance warning. That's why I recommend people get my world affairs brief. Nobody's watching this world situation and the potential of war and social unrest more than I do, and I cover it every week. Um, and so I intend to give people advance warning on that. But if you don't get advance warning and all of a sudden you see a crisis around you, you have to make a choice, first of all, about when to get out on the road or when not to get on the road. Sometimes it's better, and that's why I recommend that people have suburban or even urban houses. that They do have at least a minimum two to three weeks stockpile in the house, even if they've got to retreat further out. Because sometimes if you don't get out early enough, it may be better to hunker down and wait a couple of weeks for things mm -hmm. to start to solidify. And, and to, you know, people don't stay out there for two weeks. They get off the roads, they abandon their cars, and things do get better. Now, the roads won't get better in terms of the major freeways. They'll still be parking lots. But you must map out 
alternative routes, two or three of them at least, um, so that you can get out. And the more rural, the better. In fact, if people think they want to get to a major secondary road to get out, they really ought to think of just sticking on on suburb roads. I mean, just stay on the residential roads and find your way through those things um, in order to get out. Because the further you get out from the center, you're making more speed than you are on the freeway, which is a parking lot. So you really actually make more speed. The only, the only, how should I say, counter to that is that if you have even an hour's advance notice and the freeways are clear, then you can make time by getting out, making a sprint. But I recommend getting off that freeway before you even get close to another town and watching up ahead to make sure that you see a line of red lights of people stop, get off that freeway beforehand, well beforehand, rather than get stuck in the parking lot. But generally, it is safer to stay on the rural roads. Now, one of my strategies that I recommend in terms of an automobile package, you not only have to have spare fuel cans that you can throw into your car so that you can get out. You need to have a few repair parts and things so that you can keep going. Uh, you need to have a bug out bag where you've got some uh, you know, overnight and some food, uh, clothing. But the most important thing, if you're going to go long distance, is to stockpile fuel in advance at a friend's house in the direction that you're going. A rural home where you don't have to go into a city to find them, or you can get in through the back ways. You want to stockpile fuel if you're going to try to make yourself over several states in a long-distance way. Okay. Um, How can people find out more about what you're doing and get your books and all that stuff? Well, thanks, Jack. Um, I have two websites. Uh, one is worldaffairsbrief.com. That's www.worldaffairsbrief.com. And people, by the way, can get a free sample issue uh, of the World Affairs Brief by emailing me at editor at worldaffairsbrief.com. There is a modest subscription price of $48 a year, about a dollar a week for my analysis, but I think people will find it well worth it. My other site is joelskousen.com. J-O-E-L-S-K-O-U-S-E-N. And that's where all my books are showcased. Uh, and people can also find my books on Amazon. My bestseller is Strategic Relocation, North American Guide to Safe Places. But my biggest book and longest term book is called The Secure Home. Uh, it's gone through many editions and still in print. Over 700 pages of everything you need to know about designing and remodeling or developing a high-security home or retreat, including fallout shelters and a huge appendix that has all of the hard-to-find equipment. Um, and the other third major book that I've got is called the High Security Shelter Book. This is a unique architectural manual with full architectural plans of how to do a block shelter within an existing basement. For most people, this is the cheapest way to go. Materials probably only three to four thousand dollars as compared to thirty to forty thousand dollars for new construction for a, uh, an underground shelter. So people can build something in an existing basement uh, with this book, the high security shelter book. And so those are the three major books that I have. Very cool. And I've already actually got links to all of those books in the show notes, and I've got the links pointed uh, to where people can purchase the books directly on your site. I know sometimes for authors, uh, that's more beneficial than going through Amazon or another third party. So uh, people can certainly get the books on Amazon. They are there. I did check them, but I also have them directed straight at you. Great. Thank you, Jack. And uh, Joel, thank you for being with us today on the Survival Podcast. My pleasure. 
And with that, this has been Jack Spearco today along with Joel Scalson helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. January's always bitter But Lord, this one beats all The wind ain't quit for weeks now And the drifts are ten feet tall I've been all night driving heifers Closer in the lower ground Then I spent the morning thinking About the ones the wolves pulled out Charlie Barton and his family Stopped today to say goodbye They said the bank was taking over The last few years were just too dry And I promised that I'd visit When they found a place in town Then I spent a long time thinking About the ones the wolves pulled down your reasons for each and everything you do But tonight outside my window There's a lonesome morning for the sun And I just can't keep from thinking About the ones the wolves pulled out Oh, Lord, keep me from being The one who